I got good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is we're here, and we're going to go. Uh, the bad news is we're going to be in the book of Leviticus. So if you're not caffeinated, uh, I'm serious. We're going to be there. Uh, before we get there, just a reminder where we were last night. Um, we watched Jesus kind of, in a sense, redefine what it means to love him with our whole being, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Not just a lot, but with every aspect of who we are. And I think in a lot of ways, what Jesus is showing us, and maybe to use an illustration that we borrowed from last night, is that we're not looking for, for frozen turkeys. We're looking for people whose insides, their hearts, and their souls are so warm to the things of God that they flow over into the externals, right? And the outside and the inside, they match, they're congruent. And that ultimately is the goal. Uh, what I want to do this morning is kind of show you another picture of that, maybe from an unusual place, a place that you haven't maybe been before, haven't treaded a lot. So I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, Leviticus, if you're not familiar with that, is the third book of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. Uh, the table of contents is your friend, so if you're looking for a page number, always helpful. Uh, turn there with me, if you will. And maybe as we kind of get into the book, I want to, by way of introduction, to kind of give you a running start as to why we're going to be in this book for a little bit and why we're talking about this. If you're not familiar with Leviticus, I, I, I would imagine that you actually are. It's simply the story of the continuation of the book of Exodus. It's the story of God redeeming his people out of slavery of Egypt. The Israelites had been in the nation of Egypt for 430 years. Underneath the oppression of Pharaoh, they were slaves to him. And through Moses, God uses this incredible man to deliver his people and to bring them out. And then they're going to basically take a 40-year journey out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, but there's an issue at hand. God desperately wants to dwell with his people. He wants to know his people. He wants, in fact, to live among his people. But he is a holy God. And the people have a problem, the same problem that you and I have today, and that problem is called sin. They have obstacles between them and God. They have things that they believe, things that they do, idols that they worship that keep them inhibited from worshiping God. In a lot of ways, that's one of the biggest obstacles that God has to deal with. And he takes sin seriously. He can't just excuse it. But because of the goodness of our God in this day and age, and also in ours, God found a way to deal with that. He devised a way to be both just in dealing with sin and its consequences. The New Testament tells us that the wages of sin is death, that that's what we deserve. That's the right thing for God to do because of that. But God found a way to be just and merciful at the same time. And in the Old Testament, the way that God did that was through the picture of substitute, the picture of covering the sins of the, the people of God for a season so that they could commune with him. One would die in the place of another. And that's kind of what the book of Leviticus is ultimately about, how they do that, how in the Old Testament, the people of God who wanted to worship the Lord and be in his presence, how did they do that knowing that they were a people that were stained and mired because of sin? Well, there's a couple guys that God's going to use in this process pretty significantly. A guy by the name of Aaron, he's Moses' his brother, many of you have heard of him, and his two sons we're going to meet in this story. Uh, and they are guys that are, they're called priests. Aaron is the high priest of the day, his job is to intercede on behalf of God to the people, he's kind of the mediator or the go-between, he represents a holy God to a sinful people, and God uses him in that process along with his sons. So as we start here in Leviticus chapter 8, we're going to see the beginning of how this process works. And what we're going to do is skip rocks to chapters 8 and chapter 9. We're going to end in chapter 10. And I want to show you a story. I want to show you a couple more, in a sense, frozen turkeys. And maybe a contrast of what God is actually looking for 
in our hearts, and it's the same thing that God has been looking for for all of humanity, for all of us. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, The Lord now spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron, the high priest, and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and take the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. Like, sounds like a partridge in a pear tree. Like, what is all this stuff, right? Well, what God had done at the end of the book of Exodus is say, we're going to have a place for me to dwell in the midst of my people. And that place is going to be called the tabernacle. And that is the place where your sins are going to be covered. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to offer animals on behalf of the people that will die in their place and their shed blood will cover the sins of these people. And God is saying now in the kind of inauguration day, the very first day that this tabernacle is beginning to operate, uh, think of it like a ship that's headed out for its maiden voyage. We're taking the bottle of champagne, we're smacking it on the ship, and we're sending it on its way. This is its very first day at sea. Same with the tabernacle here. And Aaron and his two eldest sons, their names are Nadab and Abihu, probably never heard of these guys, but their story is quite significant. They are invited into the game as well. Their dad is the high priest, and they're kind of like the the junior varsity priest, so to speak. And they're helping in this very public um, launching of the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron are leading this. Skip now down to verse 8 of Leviticus, uh, sorry, verse 6 rather of Leviticus chapter 8. It says, then Moses and Aaron and his sons came and came near and washed them with water. So before they kind of move into this ceremony, God reminds them, hey, this is serious, and we're going to physically cleanse your body. You're basically going to take an appropriate bath in front of all the people to remind them that we're stained with sin. And this external picture of cleansing you is actually a picture of what we need to do with all of our hearts. And it's a reminder to them that this moment is serious because you're the go-between. You are the ones that are going to help in the process of God, a holy God, atoning or covering the sins of all of his people. And we're talking probably millions of people that are watching this happen at this point, God's people in the wilderness. You skip down now to verse 13, they actually even get a special garment that they're to wear. Moses and Aaron's sons came near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound them with caps just as the Lord had commanded them. They have a special outfit because the significance of that day was so big to them. But before they can minister on behalf of the people, before they can atone for the sins of the entire nation, what they have to do first is deal with their own sin. Because at the core, they're not, they don't get the day off. They're not an exception. It's not as if they are any different than the rest of the people. Both Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they first have to have their sin atoned for. It says in verse 14 that he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. It's a very powerful picture. Before they're going to slay this animal on behalf of Aaron and his sons, these boys are putting their hands on the heads of this animal. And the, the picture is they are identifying that animal with taking their sins. They're praying, maybe confessing in a way, their junk, their mess, their, their issues onto the head of this animal. And they believed that if I, if I can pray and I can trust in what God's system will be, This animal is going to bear away my sins, and I am trusting in it to kind of transfer what makes me dirty before the Lord or sinful before the Lord and transfer it to this animal, and this animal is going to die in my place. It will pay the penalty for my sins. And they are publicly, in front of all these people, on this great day of inauguration of the tabernacle, confessing their sin upon this animal. And they are now, in this process, main uh, uh, 
uh, made clean in this, in, this, in this ordeal. And if you skip all the way now down to verse 24, it says, He had Aaron's sons, they came near, and Moses put some of the blood of the lobe uh, from this animal on the right ear, the right thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of their right foot. Moses sprinkled the rest of the blood around the altar. So these men, after they're kind of made pure before the Lord, Moses takes some of that blood and does a very odd thing. Do you see that in verse 24? He has Nadab and Abihu, these two sons, along with Aaron. And he takes the blood and puts some of it on their ear, some of it on their thumb, and some of it on their big toe. It's as if to say, listen, guys, what you're doing is so important. You need to know that your job is to listen to God. Your job is to serve God. And your job with your feet is to, to follow God. You need to be in lockstep with God. You need to be, in a sense, maybe to use our language, 100% in. You need to be fully committed to this process because what God is doing in this moment is so significant, so miraculous, and you guys are a part of this ceremony, but you have to have this attitude. Your job is paramount to the sins of the nation, yours first and then theirs, being atoned for. In fact, in verse 33, he goes on to say, don't even leave the doorway of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. For seven days, you're going to stay here until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled. He will ordain you for seven days. He says, I want you to sit in this. I want you to think about the significance of this moment and what God is doing. Don't leave. Don't take a vacation. Don't go visit your family. You're going to sleep in the tabernacle for a week and just reflect upon what God is doing through you and all of these people. Now, in Leviticus chapter 9, as we continue to move forward, these seven days have passed. It's now the eighth day. Aaron and his sons are now clean, and for the first time ever, they're going to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation of Israel. Look at verse nine, or sorry, 15 of chapter 9. It says, Now the people, he now presented the people's offering. He took the goat for the sin offering, which is for the people. He slaughtered it on behalf of sin, just like the first. And God uses in this moment these men now to make atonement or to cover the sins of the nation in this process for the very first time. Skip down to verse 23. It says, Moses and Aaron now went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted with joy is the idea, and fell on their faces. God showed up in this moment. God said, I approve of what has happened here. This animal has died in your stead. The people are clean before me. Their sin is covered, and they see a holy God in this moment, represented by this fire that comes from heaven, and is both an appropriate rejoicing in this moment from all the people, as well as an appropriate fear of God in this moment. This God is powerful. He is not to be trifled with, and we want to walk with him as he prescribes. But this is day one on the job, so to speak. This is their very first action, Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, the first time that they have seen this tabernacle work. And what God is saying is, if you will continue to do this, if you will continue to walk with me and trust me, if you'll continue to give me 100% of you and believe in this process that I have set before you, where your sin can be covered by the shed blood of another, then this will work as we continue to move forward. So that now brings us to Leviticus chapter 10. And this is where I want to kind of downshift. I want to slow down. And I want to watch kind of what happens together. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Let's read that together. And mind you, this is the next day. The inauguration is done. We've embarked the ship out to sea. And for the first time, we're going to see how does this process continue to work. 
Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, again, the two sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, where fire pans would have been like a, basically a shovel, where you took some of the coals from the, the offering that you made, and you would use those kind of as part of the, the service to atone for the people. It says they took now those fire pans, their um, religious instruments, and after putting fire on them, placed the incense on it, and offered what is called in verse 1, a strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded him. Uh, so something happens in this process. They are, they are mentioned here in verse 1, Nadab and Abihu are offering what's called strange fire. Any of your Bibles have a different translation for strange fire? Unauthorized? Profane? We don't know exactly what it is. Something went wrong in the process, and we don't know exactly what it was, but God says what they did was incorrect. And I want you to notice in verse 2 how seriously God takes this. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, Nadab and Abihu, and they died before the Lord. Wow, what's going on here? These men are in the process, day two, of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, what God said to do, and it says that they bring some strange or unauthorized or profane offering to God, and God says, in this moment, you have failed to treat me as holy. And he literally takes their lives. Now, there have been lots of conjectures about what does it mean? What is the strange fire? What, what did they actually do? Some have suggested maybe they got the, the mixture wrong. In Exodus chapter 30, there's a very long description of exactly what type of um, incense and frankincense and those sorts of things that you were to put in this offering that they gave. Maybe they messed that up. Maybe they came at the wrong time of day. There were two sacrifices, one at nine and one at three in the afternoon. Maybe they didn't come at the right time. Uh, maybe they offered something that's incorrect. Uh, that's certainly one option, that they didn't follow, in a sense, the letter of the law. But there's two problems with that idea. Number one, Leviticus seems to state in the chapters that we just read that we kind of moved through quite quickly, that everything that Nadab and Abihu and Aaron did was actually correct. They checked all the right boxes. They did all the right things. And secondly, none of these things seem to fit the consequences of the crime. Is God really going to kill two people, take their lives in this moment because they failed to put enough incense or enough frankincense in that, that thing. It, it doesn't seem consistent with who God is. I want to suggest to you that maybe something else is happening, that something else is happening beneath the surface that maybe our initial reading of this doesn't capture. And I say that because of what we're going to see in verse 8. This text that we're about to read seems like a very odd place to put this command unless... It's specific, uh, speaking specifically to what's happening in the hearts of these two men. Look at verse 8 with me in chapter 10. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that we're talking about, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. It's sort of make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean is to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them. Why at this point would God, through Moses, say, listen, Aaron, you need to understand something. Don't you dare come into this place intoxicated, having drunk too much wine, when you're about to atone for the sin of all the people. I believe that what's happened in this moment is that these two boys, Nadab and Abihu, they checked all the right boxes they did everything that God said for them to do, but I think they were intoxicated. I think they literally came into 
the tabernacle of the Lord drunk. That seems crazy to me. Can you imagine a a pastor climbing into a pulpit after having a six-pack? Can you imagine a small group leader walking into an event after having a bottle of wine and, and, and just way too much, way in excess, not an appropriate amount, but it seems like based on what we're reading, that seems to be what's going on here. And it's not that they didn't do everything on the externals right. Their hearts in this moment were calloused. We're not talking about the stuff above the waterline. We're talking about stuff below the waterline. Have you ever been there where you have been maybe going through the motions with certain things in life? You're checking all the right boxes, but your heart is callous to those things. I get a very strong lesson in that years ago. I have three girls. Uh, one now is married, one's in college, and I have another that's a sophomore. Years ago, we took them to the, the ocean for the very first time. I'm a Texan. I grew up in Texas. We weren't close to the ocean, but when we moved here, we wanted to show our daughters the Pacific Ocean. And we had some friends that had a house on the beach, and they said, you can stay in it for vacation. So we drove there, and as an adult, I'd seen the ocean many times on many different occasions. My wife had it as well, but this was the first moment for my girls to ever see the ocean. And as you're kind of rolling through the, uh, the roads heading west to the Pacific Ocean out of Fresno, you kind of crest a couple of hills, and there you can see it. And my girls in our minivan collectively lost their minds, right? They're like, oh, Daddy, there it is. And they're like, oh, it's the ocean. And like, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? And they got all their, like, nice clothes on. I'm like, no, we're going to go to the house first, and we're going to unpack, and then we're going to put on swimsuits, and then we'll go down. And they were like, no, we promise not to get in the water in our clothes. We won't do it, Dad. Can we please go to the ocean first and not go to the house? You're boring and lame. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I finally relent, and I agree, and we go down to the ocean, and you know exactly what happened with my three girls. They stood in obedience, didn't get into the water in their nice clothes, not a chance, right? They're in, they're in the water, they're soaking wet, and my kind of hardened heart in this moment, I'm like, girls, I told you not to do that, and my wife's like, Mike, relax, right? They're having fun in the ocean, and I realized in that moment, what had become mundane for me was new and exciting for them. And they had a reverence for this thing, and they held it in this high regard. And I, in that moment, had lost sight of that idea. And I think that's happening within the hearts of these two boys, Nadab and Abihu. Their dad's the high priest. They're a really big deal. They're the JV priest of the nation. Everybody is looking to them to atone for their sins. Nobody else in the nation, unless you're Aaron's kids, get to have this job. And they got calloused, I think, in this moment to the realities of that. And in verse 3, as you go back, I want you to notice how this continues to transpire. Moses now says to Aaron, immediately after this, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near will be treated, sorry, those that come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Therefore, Aaron kept silent. Aaron has just watched the death of his two boys. And when Moses says to him, your sons failed to treat God as holy, their externals were fine, but their hearts were wicked in this process, he said, that is not okay. And I want you to notice Aaron's response. He says he kept silent. I think in a sense, though he's probably grieving, he's probably gut-wrenched in this moment, he's in a sense saying, I agree. As hard as that is to swallow, to watch my son's lives be taken by the Lord, I get it because they were profane in this moment. God's punishment was just. But it doesn't end there. Remember, these boys are in the process of atoning for the sin of the people. This is serious business. Look down at verse 12. Moses now says to Aaron and to his two surviving sons, Eleazar and Itamar, his third and fourth born sons, the only sons that he has left, 
Moses says to them, take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire, eat it, unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. So his two sons, Eleazar and Itamar, get called off the bench. What your two oldest brothers were doing, Nadab and Abihu, they failed to do. You pick up the baton and you carry on the actions of these men because we have to atone for, cover the sin of the entire nation. And they are told, I want you to know, uh, notice here in verse 12, to eat of the offering. That was part of the privilege of a priest. As you finished, and as an act of worship, you would eat some of this offering, right? That's how God provided for the priest. And it was an act of like, man, this is awesome, Lord. You've shown up, and I am now eating with the heart of worship. Now, Nadab and Abihu, as they were handling this at the very beginning, were, were offering what is called a sin offering, right? And the priests were called to eat that as well. But I want you to notice in verse 16 what happened at the end of this. It says, Moses now searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. And he was angry now with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside, into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. Oops. So these two boys, the third and fourth born, they failed to do again what God had asked them to do. And their two oldest brothers just lost their lives because of whatever disobedience was going on either externally or more than likely internally within their hearts. Can you imagine how Aaron is feeling in this moment? He's just watched his oldest two sons die. Moses now goes looking for the remainder of the sin offering, and he says, why is it all gone? Aaron, your two sons, your third and fourth born, Eleazar and Ithamar, they should have eaten the remainder of that offering. Where is the offering? This is a bad day. Can you imagine what you think Aaron is doing in his mind? What he's imagining worst case scenario could happen in this moment? The fear of maybe losing now his third and fourth born. And I want you to notice who Moses is angry with. In verse 16, he specifically calls out Eleazar and Itamar, these two sons. But I want you to notice in verse 19, who speaks? But Aaron said to Moses, Dad speaks up. Behold this very day, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. This is what my sons have done. When things like these happen to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? This is a very profound question that Aaron is now posing to, uh, to Moses. He says, when my two sons did what they did, and things like this have happened today, what is Aaron referring to when things like these have happened today? What is he talking about? My two sons just died. I'm in the act of worshiping the Lord. And my two sons, because of their disobedience, because of their hard hearts, they just died in this process. He said, Lord, would it be good, or to, to Moses specifically, would it be literally pleasing to God for me to continue in this external box-checking religiosity, so to speak? Is that what God wants? And that's what he's asking. That word good literally means, what in this moment would please God? Does God want me to go through every aspect of what he told me specifically? Do I need to check every box? Is that what God wants on this moment? Because my insides right now are wrecked. I am not in a place to worship. My heart is grieved over the loss of my sons. And if God, if you want me to fake it on the outside, I can certainly do that. 
but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pretend that I'm okay in this moment. I'm devastated because of what happened. And if God is pleased by me simply going through the religious externals, Aaron says to Moses, I, I don't think that's the case. Would me or my sons eating the sin offering at this place bring him pleasure? Is that the heart and the nature of God? That is the core of the question that Aaron is answering. And this is paramount to our understanding of who God is. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 20, the very last verse, Moses now responds to Aaron's assumption or his assertion that that's actually not what God would want. When Moses heard it, it seemed good in his sight. It's the same word. Aaron, that explanation makes sense. I get it. You are unwilling to fake it on the outside when your insides are jacked. And I think God's honored with that. And Moses says, I'm okay with that. And the chapter simply ends. There is no punishment. There is no consequence. The idea is, not only is Moses pleased with what Aaron said, but God is pleased as well. What I want you to see as we look at these two characters, there's a contrast here between Nadab and Abihu, these two eldest sons of Aaron, who are doing all the right things. They're checking all the right boxes. They're doing everything that God said to the letter of the law, and yet their hearts are jacked. To maybe use our language, they're coming to Bible study. They're going to youth group on Wednesday night. They're answering all the questions in so what time. They get up early and go to morning chapel, right? They're doing all the things externally that they should do, but they're not doing them out of a heart for a love of God. They're doing them to maybe impress men around them, to look like a big deal. They want to seem important in the eyes of others. Maybe it's their pride that's driving them. But ultimately, that's what's at stake here. And God says, that's not what I'm after. I've never been after that. In fact, in Malachi chapter 10, speaking of offerings and sacrifices, God speaks to his prophet years later regarding the sacrificial system. He says, oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I wish you would put a padlock on the tabernacle and shut it down. If you're going to come into my presence and do all the right things with a wicked heart, your sacrifices to me are absolutely useless. I do not desire that. That is not what I want. I am not pleased with you says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So you've got Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, that are that picture. And then you have that contrasted with Aaron, who literally fails to fulfill every letter of the law. In fact, he intentionally breaks the law so as to please God. His heart is wrecked. He's not in a place to worship, but he's honest, and he's broken before the Lord. And he says, God, this is where I'm at. I am hurting, I am grieving, and I can't possibly be in a place to rightly worship you in this moment, so I'm not going to fulfill all these checkboxes simply to do them for doing them sake. It's very similar to what we saw last night in the scribe when he answered Jesus and he said, maybe to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my, with all my mind is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Maybe what God wants from me is not mere religious external behavior modification. Maybe God wants my heart. Maybe he wants something deeper. And maybe those things externally, they'll come from a heart that's rent to him and obedient to them, but he doesn't want that to drive the process. He says, I want you to fully love me with all that you are, and from that place, then you will worship me 
fully. And friends, I think this is such a picture that we need to see. Aaron intentionally disregards the commands of God because his heart wasn't in the right place. And God says, I'm actually more honored than that than you faking it externally. Paul says it like this to the church at Philippi. He says, this I pray that your love may abound still the more in more and real knowledge and discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul says to these believers, I want you to be sincere, real before me and before the Lord. That word sincere comes from two different words. It means sun tested. Back in Paul's day, they would take a piece of pottery that was sold in the market. And in order to see how valuable it was, they would hold it up to the light. In a fake piece of pottery, or maybe a piece of pottery that broke during the, the drying process, and they didn't want that to be seen because it was now worthless, they would take that piece of pottery and they'd stick wax in it. And then they would paint over it. And the way to tell one that wasn't cracked, or at least one whose cracks hasn't been tried to be hidden, was to hold it up to the sun, to make it sincere or sun-tested. And what Paul is saying to them is, I want you to be sun-tested. I don't want you to be, and this sounds funny, I don't want you to be believers with wax in your cracks. I want you to live those out. I want you to be honest about those cracks. Don't cover them. Live in your brokenness. Be honest about those things. Be sincere before the Lord. God says, that's what I want. I don't want nadabs and abihus of the world that do everything right on the outside while their hearts are not right on the inside. I am more delighted in errands that will walk in obedience to me, that will be honest about their brokenness and live that out. Friends, I think that is what God wants of all of us. But if we're honest, this is hard. I don't know about you, but I don't love admitting my faults. I don't love talking about my brokenness. But I think God is delighted in that. When we'll be honest before him and say, here are my issues. So in a spirit of asking you to do something, I'm going to go first. And I'm going to admit to you guys my flaws and my brokenness in the hopes that maybe that will inspire you to do your own. I'm a prideful man. I wrestled with pride my whole life. And if I'm honest, my pride is simply a mask of my own insecurities. As a 46-year-old man, I am still desperately insecure. I worry way too much about the thoughts and opinions of others of me. I concern myself thinking about what does this person think? How am I doing my job? Am I earning the approval of men? And I wrestle with that. And there's times I have to continually, daily go back to the gospel and say, God, I'm a child of yours. My identity and my self-worth are not found in how other people view me. But I struggle with that on a daily basis. And I have to remind myself of the truths of the gospel. That though I am insecure and though I am a prideful man, God, your blood has covered that through your son. And my identity comes from that reality that I am his. And you may identify with some of those. Your cracks may be different. But I think for all of us, the, the encouragement for me as you guys now move into this time, into your so what time, is to talk about that. And if you have the courage in your group, I want you to talk about these things, to admit your faults and to be honest about maybe where those cracks are in your life. Because I think at God, as he talks about what it means to give him 100%, he is not looking for Christians that fake it. He is looking for people that are sincere and honest and broken before him and say, this is my life, Lord. What can you make of it? Is Jesus big enough to deal with my sin and my issues? And I think the overwhelming answer to that question is yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment, for these stories that we get to see. As we see pictures and glimpses of your character and your nature. Father, I am so grateful 
that for years and years and years, you have dealt with broken people just like me and just like these students here. Father, you love them despite who they are. You love me despite my weaknesses and my, my imperfections. Father, would you help us to be honest about those? Would you help us to be men and women who would be courageous enough to talk about those, to find security in you, to find forgiveness of sin in you, to find our identity and our self-worth in you? and not anything else that this world says we should put that in. Father, thank you that the gospel tells us that is true, that you cover our sin with the shed blood of your son, and we can find forgiveness and redemption in him and him alone. Father, thank you for Jesus, our author and our hero of all of our faith. Father, would we look to him in these moments. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.